why I'm always teasing you. You hate to have me call you pretty baby. I really thought that I was teasing you. Why oh, you're just a baby to me. Hey, this is Megan here. And Thomas. And this is These Old Queers. This is our first episode, so invariably this will be awkward and painful for, I hope not you, but maybe for us. I'll try not to make it painful. I teach. That's what I do. Awkward and painful. (laughs) I also teach, which I am awkward and it is awkward and painful. So here we go. Awkward and painfulness. Yay. So, uh, we are here with our very first episode to just let you know a bit about it, about us, about what we're going to be doing, and various miscellanea. So, um, we are starting this to talk about our shared queer history and to talk about some things that maybe we haven't gotten to hear much about because straight society doesn't really like to share things about the, ha- the history of gay people or queer people for that matter. And old, old, old things. These old queers. Exactly. Why are we doing that, Megan? Well, we are doing that because we ourselves are old queers. We were both born in the beautifully decadent year of 1979 so what what generation are we exactly (laughs) we and this is the thing and this is why we are such fucked up weirdos um so we are considered we're on the we're baby gen xers allegedly i don't consider myself a fucking gen xer because in the 90s i could not go to a bar but I guess for Australians or other people who live in countries that allow drinking, that would feel different. I, I had someone call me an elder millennial, which uh, I kind of, I was, I was all right with that. To yes. Be with you. It feels like you, it's something you should have some things, some badges, you know, you should have a cravat, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, I've also heard the term geriatric millennials. <laughs> yeah. I'll. I will take that. Um, I don't mind being old. I mean, that is part of this is, is like talking about things with the understanding that a lot of podcasts out there are produced by younger queers and aimed at a younger queer audience. And uh, my interests are not always their interests. Same. Um, and I think that also there's a lot of like, it's weird being queer and thinking about aging because you don't necessarily have any idea of what that's going to be. What is that going to be like? What's that going to look like? Um, Yeah, that's like a concern that you probably don't necessarily have considering that so much of queer culture is youth-focused and youth-centered. Absolutely, especially within the um, mask circles of that, specifically like gay males. Uh, Also, there are so many gay men in particular who um, don't have any reference point for how to age as a gay male because so many gay men who are elders died of AIDS. So a lot of us are kind of figuring things out as we go along. Just like you do when you're young, but different. So would you briefly just 
describe your qualifications. Yes, I would love to. Thank you so much for asking. Um, so my name's Megan, and as I already said, and my pronouns are she and they. I am. I identify as a non-binary lesbian. I um, also define sexual because I don't let people's bits define who I fancy. So yeah, that's that. Um, I am an artist. I'm a writer. I'm also a podcaster. I have another podcast called Dark Habits. By the way, I'm also a witch. And hang, and um, I in my other podcast, I talk about all stuff witchy and queer. And um, I am also a um, that's it. <laughs> Thomas, can you take it away, please? <laughs> uh, my name's Thomas. Uh, my pronouns are he, they. I'm a trans mask person. Um, I'm Polly, but my primary partner is a cis gay guy. Um, I'm gay depending on where I'm at and who I'm with. Uh, but I tend not to get that attached to, to labels. I've been a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> I used to be a lesbian. <laughs> Yay, part of us. <laughs> <laughs> um, I'm a historian. I'm working on a PhD, not in queer history, I have to say. Um, people often assume <laughs> that that's, you know, if you're queer, that's what you're going to do. Um, when really what you wind up doing your research on depends on what you can get paid to research. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm really interested in the topic of um, queer history, although it's not what I work on professionally. Um I'm an artist, too, like all the rest of the queers. <laughs> we have to check all the boxes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, I, and I teach when I can get work teaching. <laughs> <laughs> Always a fun task, finding work and all that, that stuff that gives you money. I, I think that's uh, mm -hmm. enough to be yeah. going on with for now. Yeah, so... Um, but I, we do have a lot of, speaking of ticking all the boxes, a lot of labels. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So why have we gone with the word queer? Well, both of us uh, identify as queer, uh, speaking of more labels yet. Uh, and for us, being queer is its own identity. For me, being queer is beyond... Uh, sexuality, it's beyond gender, it is a way of navigating through the world. How do you see being queer? I, I like to think of the original meaning of mm. the word queer. Um, so like a lot of the things that became slurs had different meanings before. So like if you look up uh, the word gay, you'll, you'll find that gay used to mean happy. Um, it wasn't always a slur. Uh, that wound up being reclaimed. Um, and the same thing for queer. Queer used to mean uh, things that were outside of the norm. Not things that were abnormal, but outside of the norm. There's a difference between, you know, the norm and normal. They have different value-laden connotations. And queer just used to be what was unusual 
and special. Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm happy to be unusual and weird and wonderful. Mm-hmm. And I am too. Uh, and so this will celebrate those who are weird, unusual, and wonderful in all their forms. We use queer as a blanket term for the LGBTQ plus experience. We realize that some people do still find this to be a challenging word to accept, which we completely understand comes from a place of trauma. This is not a word that we are using in any way, shape, or form as a slur. Um, I'm, I hope that uh, you can understand that we are trying to do this with the utmost respect. It's also going to be very handy because um, the further we go back in time, the less applicable some of the modern terminology surrounding the LGBTQIA plus community is going to be. Absolutely. Because um, it's not just back in time, but, you know, through different cultures, they're not going to have had, like, the same understanding of themselves because they didn't have the same linguistic toolboxes that we have. Mm-hmm. So it becomes increasingly difficult to put precise identity tags on people um, the further back we're going to go. Absolutely. And just like these people in history, we also have gone through our own uh, journeys about language to describe who we are. And when we were growing up, some words such as non-binary was not something you ever really heard. So... For the people in the past, oftentimes you will hear um, lover used, for example, to mean partner. And this was something that was common parlance, say, in the 1970s, and things have changed. So, or, and sometimes some people still use that term. And if you read anything by, you know, anthropologists and archaeologists and historians, we use the word roommate. (laughs) (laughs) The famous roommate. They were just roommates. (laughs) We will try to be more accurate than that. Yes. Let's say we'll definitely be more accurate than that. (laughs) And um, it does come to some um, troubles when you look at, say, trans identities in the past, for example, because... Um, some people who we might not now be called transgender didn't refer to that to themselves as that. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. And there are, you know, older members of the trans community who don't like the term transgender, in fact. Yep. Um, so like you use the words to identify you that you want to use. Um, some people don't like to use the word queer. That's fine. I understand that. Just don't tell me I can't use it. Absolutely. Because this is also something that we as queer people get to own and we as queer people get to define who we are. Um, if you don't, if you don't consider or go by the term queer for yourself, we absolutely respect that. However, both of us do, which is why we have named it These Old Queers. Okay, so um, 
we will be talking about our own um, journeys as queer people because we ourselves are old queers. We will also be mostly focusing on um, queer events and people from the past whose lives and actions deserve attention because so much of our queer heritage has been swept under the rug or erased. First, though, today we are going to talk about our own experiences growing up as queer people. We are both from the United States originally. Thomas, can you tell us a bit about yourself, please? Uh, so I uh, was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana, um, 1979, uh, decade of the serial killers. <laughs> <laughs> Golden age, in fact. Uh, yeah, really. Uh, we're both into true crime. <laughs> so there's probably going to be some some history of true queer crime stuff as well. Just letting you know. Um, And then when I was older, my family moved to Mississippi. And in terms of like what I was exposed to, I guess, growing up, especially outside of school, um, wasn't, wasn't a lot. (laughs) You know, Um, although... Like, my family is, is biracial, so my mom's white and my dad's uh, native. And my dad's family actually has, like, a lot of queer happening on. Like, but it's not, it's not talked about that way. So it's, it's not things that other people would necessarily recognize as um, queer or part of the gay community. Um... Yeah, Native um, Two-Spirit stuff is kind of different. Um, But my mom's family um, is is very uh, mostly evangelical. And, um, you know, getting on towards, like, my generation of the fundy Southern Baptist flavor. So um, being gay was considered bad. Um... We didn't have any, like, you know, and sex ed was. <laughs> yeah. Uh, gay wasn't discussed. I mean, that wasn't a, a thing ever covered in, in school. No. As part, and certainly not, like, gay history. Um, you, you might have been able to read the lines a little bit in, in, a, few, in a few things, you know, but it'd be very blurry. A kind of like birdcage, what are these boys doing on these plates kind of deal. (laughs) 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 But it wasn't going to be like outright discussed. Right. Um, Weirdly, like my first, I guess, exposure to, um, you know, homosexuality in general was at church because they talked about it all the damn time. (laughs) (laughs) It was really as a teenager in Mississippi that I became more and more aware of myself as like, yeah, I ain't like that. <laughs> like what these other people are doing, that's not <laughs> marry some dude uh, and have kids and be a good little housewife. Nah. 
but it it wasn't, you know, there wasn't a sense of community, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and the only gay kid that I knew at school became, like, my friend by default because there was... Like, I didn't know what was going on with me, neither did anyone else, if I'm perfectly honest. <laughs> um, so you kind of wound up hanging out with, you know, other people who seem to be like you, even if otherwise they might not be who you would have chosen to <laughs> hang out with. Um, and as far as, like, transgender stuff, uh, yeah, I I hate to say it, but my introduction to transgender people came from Jerry Springer. (laughs) And I know for a fact I am not the only person who had their egg cracked by fucking trash daytime TV. (laughs) How about you, Megan? What was it like where you were growing up? A lot of gay culture to be exposed to? You mean the the bustling gay metropolis of Olathe, Kansas? (laughs) Fabulous. Uh, no, it, it really fucking sucked, actually. Um, also, we use a lot of profanity and fuck words, so, like, if you have a problem with that, sorry, not sorry. It's a little late to make that disclaimer. <laughs> yeah, by the way, we're sewer mouths. <laughs> so, just get used to that fact. Uh, I grew up mostly in Olathe, Kansas. Um, My family's from Kansas City. I lived in Florida briefly as a kid. So I, and fun fact, I was almost abducted twice because Florida in the 80s party. uh, So that we moved back to Olathe and where I had grown up in Florida, it was pretty a mixed group of people everyone from someplace else. It was mostly a Jewish community. And because everyone was from someplace else, you just kind of met people and became friends. And in Kansas, things were really different. Um, You were only really friends with people if you knew them since infancy or you went to the same church. And my family didn't do that because we're agnostic. And I learned pretty fast that apparently I was going to hell. I asked my mom and she just responded with, don't worry, you'll be fine. And I was like, okay. So I was outed by some girls in seventh grade. They wrote on the walls of the bathroom that I was a lesbian. And I had no idea what it, what I was at all. So um, that added to a layer of being isolated and that continued into junior high school throughout high school things got a little better though because when I entered junior high the grunge era was just kicking off and for a weirdo kid that kind of created a safe space because there all of a sudden there were alternative kids because that's what they were called before they were indie And I was able to find other kids who were weirdos in some way, shape, or form. And we were able to bond together and go to all ages clubs, like where we went to, G Coffee, and got to see bands. And there was even a little kind of queer clique at my high school 
um, mostly queer women. And I kind of found my people as my high school years went along. Um, then when I entered college, things were a little easier. I still didn't fit in because apparently I didn't dress correctly to be a lesbian. I did not dress like a fraternity guy. Therefore, I was not interesting. I'm not, like, because I supposedly dressed like a lesbian. <laughs> Is fraternity guy the same as, like, lumberjack? I'm just, I'm not, I'm confused. Oh, okay. Well, let me paint a picture, if I will. Um, so, cargo shorts or cargo pants, polo shirts, and white uh, visors. Okay, so I guess, like, where I was at. For my early university, uh, we had a different dress code for the lesbians because it was very much like, you know, we invented hipsters. <laughs> like, it was plaid shirts and flannels and you know, oh. boots and that kind of. Okay. Nobody, nobody wanted to be mistaken for a fraternity dick. Like, Which is logical because guess what? I, have, I had and still have zero interest in dating a frat guy. However... I was not a hot piece for the Dykes in Lawrence, Kansas at the time. My best friend was is is femme, and he was too much for the gays because no fats, no femmes, no Asians. The old beautiful adage of hatred. So we just kind of had our own queer club, and we kind of we called we called ourselves unofficially sort of the special people club because we were obsessed with welcome to the dollhouse. And, uh, when I, after I graduated, I moved to Chicago and fell in with the indie queer scene there. There, and I was really able to come out then, um, and be, uh, accepted because there was no weird frat uniform in Chicago Everyone could look any way they wanted, and being queer was just part of who you were. So I um, really started coming into my own in my early 20s. How about you? Um, well, I didn't stay in Walnut. Thank God. Yeah, because it is about as big as it sounds. You know? <laughs> it's very much a uh, one yellow flashing light sound. <laughs> um, I got a, I got a, you know, scholarship because I needed a token poor <laughs> at this boarding school. And so that's, I fucked off to boarding school and uh, there was a gay straight alliance there, which really, you know, I'm, I'm not going to say that I really fit in, I guess, because, um, yeah, class wound up being a bigger separation at that school uh, than than I would have thought. Um, it, it was quite the other world. Um, but I did get exposed to more queer culture than just the kind of things that you would see on, like, you know, daytime TV when you were skipping school. Um <laughs> So, like, you know, someone... I finally got to see it 
fried green tomatoes and someone explained to me what it was about. So, <laughs> like, I got exposed to more stuff. Yeah. Um, I guess I really started finding out more about who I was when I got to Hampshire, which is where I started my my university career. Um, although I only I only got to stay for two years because um, there's only so much money for token pours. Like it looks good to have them at the start, but nobody cares if anybody graduates. <laughs> um, but there was a a very much an activist scene. So I guess that's really where I, I wound up in with a kind of activist scene in college. Mm. So like native activism on the one hand and then, um, you know, queer activism on the other. Um, there was still a lot of like cliquishness that I didn't really seem to... I didn't always feel like I felt like I fit in. Um... And I had a very bad experience with uh, a girlfriend who found my packer and, you know, had a fit because apparently I had, um, you know, destroyed her gold star. Jesus. Uh, You know. um, Can you explain what gold star means? Oh, uh, she had never been with a man. Mm Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know that I was a dude, <laughs> but she, she knew before I did, but that appears to have been the case with a lot of people, as it turns <laughs> out. Uh, <laughs> Everyone knew before we did. What the fuck? Yeah. No, no shit. Yeah. It's just really, well, you know, sometimes like it takes an outsider to, to get the perspective, like the yeah. big picture. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like... <laughs> it does. Certainly, some of my family were like, when I came out, it was a huge disappointment to find out how bad I was at passing as a woman. <laughs> it turned out to be very disappointing because by that point, I was putting in serious work. <laughs> <laughs> Gotta get this right! <laughs> I'm gonna buy the dress and learn how to do makeup that doesn't look like clown makeup. Like, I'm gonna make a fucking effort here. And no, no, nobody was fooled. It was, it was very disappointing to discover that my efforts were for naught. <laughs> but I started learning more about um, not trans history, but that trans people were like real people and not just, you know, Cher's son. Like there were more, more. <laughs> more than just one? And, and, you know, the trans women that you'd see on TV it was like, but up until that point, I think that Chaz Bono was the only trans guy I had ever actually seen. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, the second trans guy I ever saw was Buck Angel, and that's a whole other oh, thing. Jesus. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but I did find out that this was a thing that you could do. Mm-hmm. You know, um, might not be possible everywhere, but it is a thing that can happen. Uh, and then I tried to make that happen and discovered at that time in the nineties, transitioning was, um, I mean, there's a lot of gatekeeping now, but the gatekeeping back then was, it was a lot. It was very much a lot. Um, and I did not qualify for transitioning for 
it turns out, numerous reasons. Um, and it wasn't until I moved to Belgium and I started considering it more and more, especially as I became increasingly depressed and unhappy. Uh, and I wound up becoming an alcoholic. And my partner at the time, whom I had met on uh, Realms, which is a mud. If you know what a mud is, you're old too. <laughs> Junior boomer. <laughs> and um, we broke up. And at that point I thought, you know, what I can't, there's no, there's no, there's only one other thing left to do and I'm not quite ready to check out yet. Okay. So that's when um, I decided I was just going to finally transition and see if I was going to become like the unhappy monster that trans people are always told, this is what you're going to be. You're going to die poor and alone. That's what you're always poor and alone. Um, turns out that's not always true. It might happen sometimes, but it's not always true and it doesn't have to be true. No. I mean, you know, the poor part, that's always going to be Well, I'm used to being poor. That's fine. I mean, I don't, I'm not like super happy about it. <laughs> like I'd like, uh, if my life was a little easier, but like, it was always weird to like have people in my life being like, you're going to die poor and alone. And it's like, what's, what is the difference between that and now? Yeah. Like my partner left, I am alone and I'm poor. So I may as well be able to like take a shower without clothes on and look at myself in a mirror, right? Mm -hmm. That's right. So, yeah, moving moving away proved to be a huge um, change in my life. Like travel to Belgium where transition is affordable. Mm -hmm. um, and getting Belgian citizenship, just so you know, ain't actually that hard. Just, <laughs> not, I'm not like trying to recruit, <laughs> but I'm just saying, okay. <laughs> um, really gave me the opportunity to, to really be myself. Yeah, great. So I guess that's most of my my queer history. Mm -hmm. uh, how, so how'd you end up here? Yes. Yeah, so if you didn't already know, now you do. We are both Americans who are call Belgium home, and I ended up here because I met my wife on Live Journal. And if, as Thomas already mentioned, if you know about Live Journal, you're old. Welcome. Join us, won't you? So I met my wife and I moved to Belgium permanently in 2007. And um, it was pretty amazing for me when I moved here because um, I was pretty shocked at how normal it was to be gay oh yeah yeah i was still coming from a place where i was very hesitant to let people know especially in a work environment that i was queer but turns out 
most people didn't really give a shit. So that was something to get used to because that my knee-jerk reaction was always to test the waters first because I don't normally trust people initially. And um, just as a self-preservation thing. So for me, that was a big step. And um, now I am, a, we're both officially Belgian. And we just ended up meeting each other and through a mutual friend and uh, realized, wow, we have so much in common, especially dark as night humor. Actually, I remember the day that we met. We were at that Trump protest. That's how we and met. And you had that fantastic sign. What was it? Not this time, Biff. <laughs> <laughs> I forget what I even wrote on that, but it was something referring to Back to the Future part two, might I add, because we all know that fucking Biff Tannen in Back to the Future part two is totally based on Donald Trump. So that's how we met. Yeah, I think I still have my sign in the closet, actually. Really? Yeah, the one that has, like, the little stick figure. Aww. This is Thomas. Aww. Thomas has tiny hands. Thomas has a tiny penis. Don't be an asshole. <laughs> be like Thomas I- Trump. <laughs> <laughs> that was brilliant. Yeah, we just basically hit it off right away, I think. And um, we both are have a huge fascination with with history specifically queer history um growing up when we did there was no mention of gay rights of queer rights or especially of stories from the past about lgbtq plus people And even just having the words simply to describe who we were, who we are, didn't really exist. I um, have always struggled with my own gender identity, and I never really knew where I fit in. And I've always felt really both male, female, and whatever else. And... I thought that I was just broken. I thought I was a broken a broken toy and that I would never be happy and there was no one else like me and I was defective. I also felt that, you know, I didn't deserve love. I didn't deserve um, to have a partner that I would die alone. I always, I never thought that I would have anyone and I wish I could have grown up knowing that there's a term for people like me called non-binary and that I'm not broken. I'm just different. I'm just a weirdo and a queerdo. And that's who I am. And growing up where I did, there was really not much allowance for gender expression. And I know that's the case for a lot of people. Um... So for me, coming to the terms with the fact that I'm non-binary, I'm still growing up. And I am looking for that inspiration from the past that will further confirm who I am, who we are as the queer community, and that we have a history, we have a legacy, that, and we have an ancestry 
that extends beyond our bloodlines because all of these people from the past who were like us in some way, shape, or form, or not like us at all, but living their own queer truth, have often been relegated to the margins, even within the own margins that they exist in, existed in. And we want to raise that up and elevate it, not just for ourselves, but for anyone else who might listen to this and be inspired and um, also realize that there's a big legacy and it's a proud legacy that we all deserve to know because growing up not hearing, not even being allowed to say gay at school unless it was a slur really marked us. And for middle-aged queer people, a lot of us are growing up all over again um, for, to better understand who we are and um, what our place in history is. And it's not only for people now, but it's also for people in the past whose lives were treated as insignificant or as unimportant, as trash, and who were silenced, to give those people a voice and to not just give them a voice, but lift up their voices throughout the bounds of time. So we can also honor them as spirits in this world that we exist in, because that's part of, of acknowledging your ancestors. Yeah, I think that um, certainly I, one of the things I want to do with this podcast is to honor our ancestors. But also, as a historian, I, I think it's important to recognize that the past can provide us with so many things. Um, because so often the past is used against us. Mm-hmm. You know, you see so many people who are like, uh, especially recently with the, the trans panic, about which I'm sure we'll talk about oh, we will. more in the future, who um, basically make stupid statements about like how trans people were invented during the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and we were all fucking trapped in our houses and someone just thought, oh yeah, I'm just, I'm going to be trans and that's how trans people were born, okay? <laughs> they want to act like trans people happened yesterday and that is so not true. You know, and they use, like, the idea that this is a novel thing as a way to delegitimize the existence of trans people. Mm-hmm. Um, so recovering our past and talking about it, I feel, is so important. And also um, recognizing, you know, whatever it is that we're going through now has probably already been done. And they survived. So we can, too. Obviously, it's not always going to be a one-to-one, uh, although, you know, recently you say, don't say gay, and I'm thinking, Florida, <laughs> you know. So uh, we see a lot of cycles in history. And, yeah, it's important to recognize that, uh, especially the further back you go, the more foreign things become. But 
sometimes you look at things and you're like, really, are we doing this again? I'm tired. (laughs) 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 I think it's important uh, to look at not just what happened, but how people dealt with what happened. I think that can often be like the more useful thing, not just, you know, a singular event, but what led up to it, all that context and also what may or may not have happened afterwards, you know, which might have led to change. And how can we learn from that, I think, can be really important. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, because it's also a strategy, because there's so much with history that we don't realize can really impact us now in the present. Everything from history impacts us now. Every single event in history has an imp- a direct impact now. It's also important to recognize, I think, that um, so many people have, especially in the U.S., I think because we got the whole wretched manifest destiny thing going on there, um, everything in history is contingent. People like to say shit happens. Uh, shit don't just happen, <laughs> all right? Nothing happens out of nowhere. History is created um literally as it's happening and then it's recreated later when people are talking about it um history is like an ongoing thing that we are all engaged in producing not just by like the stuff that we do from day to day but every time we talk about the past you're creating the past um is that a little unsettling yeah i guess a lot of people like to think that uh you know again especially in the u.s (laughs) Um, that history has a destination and a goal and that that's decided beforehand. There's a, you know, an end purpose. And that's just not the case. Um, also, you know, unless you're Doctor Who, uh, you're not actually going to know what happens. So a lot of history is, you know, it's a production that occurs later. Um and I think that's actually not a bad thing to embrace um, because it gives us the chance to look at history as possibilities. Things were not the same and that means that they don't have to be the way that they are now, um, which is another thing that I hate about trans panic. Uh, people have always blah, blah, blah. Nah, <laughs> not so much. Read something, mm-hmm. you know. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> not at all. People have always. As soon as somebody's like, people always blah blah blah. I just <laughs> kind of either my blood pressure is going to go up because old, uh, <laughs> or you know, I just I gotta tune them out. I gotta. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's 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 easier with students because like especially here, the Belgian students aren't into fighting like that. <laughs> Or talking. <laughs> or talking. I'm, that's unfortunate, in fact. It is. Um, I feel bad for colleagues in the States who, who have to, like, have arguments with students who have never learned anything about the past but what they were told at church or by their parents or mm-hmm. whatever wretched textbook they were half paying attention to. <laughs> their circa 1989 textbook. <laughs> hey. And I would have killed for that. Oh. You know, and, and Walnut, our textbooks ended with Eisenhower. 
Oh, wow. Our, that was... <laughs> I mean, ours ended with Vietnam. I guess they were a little more current. Yeah, just a bit. <laughs> God. You want to talk about what we're going to do next? I think that leads us yeah. on to, you know, getting down to what it is that we're doing. Yeah. So what we'll be doing is we'll be sharing different uh, events stories and testimonials from uh, our queer past. So from all over the world where queer history has occurred, we'll be covering it. Um, Coming up in our next episode, Thomas is going to be sharing with us an event that you may have recently seen in the last installment of Tales of the City. Uh, what, what, what is that that you're going to be sharing with us, Thomas, next time? I'm going to be talking about the, uh, Compton Cafeteria Riot. Mm. Um, although to be honest with you, a bit of a spoiler, the riot itself is, by riot standards, I mean, I'm not going to say it wasn't traumatic for the people involved, but, yeah, by modern day standards, mm, yeah. It's more what happened before and after that's so really, like, super important. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And just to get an idea of what you'll be, what we'll be offering for you guys, um, I will also be talking about a very heavy topic, a very heavy story involving the upstairs lounge arson attack in New Orleans in the early 1970s. So please feel free to hit subscribe, follow us, and check us out because we're going to be here being old, having our backs hurt, taking our pills, our medications. (laughs) Speaking of which. Speaking of which. (laughs) Gotta take my meds. (laughs) (laughs) So get the fuck off of our lawns. But come back for us later next time. Bye. See ya. I was leaving you